we regularly talk in this community about being a missional family. And when we say that, we're drawing attention to the fact that God has a mission, which is about reconciling all things and renewing all things. It's grand in its scope. And that he has invited us as his people to be a part of that mission with him. He's called us to join him in that mission. It's a mission that is for life. Uh, centered on Jesus, the Lord of all, who is the subject of the Gospels and of the Gospel and of the book of Mark that we've been studying for the past number of weeks. And it's in Jesus that God is executing that mission, that he's working it out in the world. The God of life is bringing life to a broken and hurting world, and he's doing this by offering grace and forgiveness and mercy and extending his love freely to all who would accept his gift. It's great news, as we call it good news, and we have this mission to share. But there is opposition in the mission. There always has been, and there always will be. Paul wrote long ago in Ephesians 6 that our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. There is opposition. And as we continue in this series on the Gospel of Mark today, in chapter 6, we get to observe a time when the mission of the kingdom is expanding, but at the same time we see the reality of opposition. And Jesus taught us to expect this kind of response. Remember the parable of the sower, the key feature of that chapter, chapter 4, when Jesus is doing some teaching about the kingdom. The seed is this word of life that is sown about by Jesus. And some of it is sown along the path, and Satan comes and immediately snatches it away. Some is sown on the rocky ground, and it has no roots, springs up very quickly. But then when trial comes, people fall away. Some is sown among the thorns. And that life that is sown there is choked out by the things of this world. And some, yes, is sown among the good soil and bears fruit 30, 60, and 100-fold. But the point of this parable is that as the word goes out, there will be mixed results. There will be opposition. We're looking at chapter 6, verses 1 through 30 this morning. And in these verses, we see three kinds of opposition that we want to consider together. And as we consider them, I think we'll find that they're not only a problem, so so to speak, out there, but they're a potential problem in here in each of our own hearts. So first, in Nazareth, Jesus' hometown. This is verses, six, uh, verses 1 through 7. Jesus, uh, we see the opposition of over-familiarity. Over-familiarity. Jesus comes back home, and on the Sabbath, he's teaching in the synagogue. And there is initial astonishment in verse 2. Many who heard him were astonished. But like the seed on the path, that is quickly snatched up. Why? Because they know this man. This is Jesus. They know that he's a carpenter, the son of Mary. They know his brothers and his sisters. And so in verse 3 we read, they took offense at him. Their astonishment, their initial astonishment, turned to offense. Such great things can't be coming from the guy who built my deck two years ago, is essentially what they're saying. Or the teenager that was running about at Pizza Hut on Friday nights. Who does he think he is? 
And so this overfamiliarity leads them to push him away. Last week we saw that faith, which is a theme of Mark's gospel, is trust. It's putting your life into the hands of this king. It's a practical confidence in the supernatural power of God that is for you in Jesus. But they have the exact opposite of this because of their overfamiliarity. To them, in spite of the evidence of his actions and his astonishing teaching, Jesus is just natural, just the boy down the street who now thinks he's something, but they know he's not. And so we read in verse 6, Jesus' response as he marvels at their unbelief. He marvels at their unbelief. Overfamiliarity. It would look different and does look different in our world today. None of us grew up with the bodily Jesus living on our cul-de-sac. But it could be the overfamiliarity of a scholar, one who has studied Christianity deeply and the biblical text from a critical eye. She feels that she can see behind these texts, and while there's something there and something astonishing, it's all just a bit too much. She has no faith. Or the overfamiliarity of the person growing up in our Western culture that has largely been shaped by the Christian narrative. That, of course, is becoming less and less the case. But there are still elements, even in the secular Northeast, where the rhythms of the life of Jesus are carrying over into the world. Where Jesus is known, perhaps even with a kind of astonishment, but is resigned to the margins of life. Think for just about how our culture embraces or engages the holiday Christmas. There are vestiges of the reality of Jesus and his glory, overrun by consumerist and materialist tendencies in each one of us. Think about all of the religious festivals in the North End, in our own town, celebrating different saints and holy days, but marked by revelry and worldliness. This is about feasting and tradition, but not, in the end, really about the Jesus who is Lord of all. It's just another reason to party. Some of us, even here, have grown up with Jesus. But perhaps we've settled into rhythms of life where, though we profess faith, there's no genuine trust in him, in our hearts. We become overfamiliar. We live like we're on our own, like it all depends upon us. And perhaps we've become inoculated against his power and presence and reality by overfamiliarity. The next little section, Jesus moves to sending out the apostles. And we see a second kind of opposition, and it's the oppos- opposition of rejecting repentance. This is a pretty extraordinary moment in Mark's gospel where the apostles, uh, they have been called as fishers of men in chapter 1. They've been called to be with Jesus and to be sent out in chapter 3. But then they have to observe him. They observe him teaching and instructing in chapter 4. They observe his mighty deeds in chapter 5. And then they get sent out here in chapter 6 after seeing Jesus be rejected in his hometown. They're given authority over unclean spirits, and they're told to take only what they need for the journey to the next town. A staff and sandals, but all the other items in the list say, Jesus says no to. Take enough for the journey, but not enough for the long haul. For that, you will depend upon the hospitality of others. In a sense, illustrating for us our dependence upon God. 
Give us this day our daily bread. And in verse 11, when Jesus says, if they, this is where the opposition comes. He says, if any place will not receive you and they will not listen to you, when you leave, shake off the dust that is on your feet as a testimony against them. They're not received, not listened to. Continue in verse 12. What was their message that wasn't being listened to? So they went out, verse 12, and proclaimed that people should repent. Same message as John the Baptist, who went around proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Same message as Jesus, who said, repent, his first words, and believe the good news. And same message for the apostles, same message for us. To repent. It means to give up your own way of thinking or your own way of doing life and to accept the way of another. Here's the way that Tom Wright describes this using a parallel from Josephus in the first century. Repent and believe in the, uh, when Jesus says repent and believe in the good news at the beginning of Mark 1, there's almost an exact parallel to that in the Jewish writer Josephus. He talks about a time when he went to Galilee in the 60s of the first century. And he said to one of the brigand leaders, Repent and believe in me. What Josephus was saying was, Give up your way of doing stuff. I've got a better idea. Come with me. That's what those words sounded like in Galilee in the first century. When Jesus told people to repent, he didn't mean have some kind of sad religious experience. He meant, you're going the wrong way. You're going to have to turn around because God is doing a new thing, and if you're going to be a part of that new thing, you're going to have to give up the way that you've been going. That's the end of the quote. And this was the message that they proclaimed. Even as they healed the sick and as they cast out demons, those actions were undeniable. But it was the call to repentance that no doubt provoked the opposition. We don't like to give up our own way. We don't like to give up control. But this is a fundamental response to the offer that God gives us for life. To have life means to walk down this road of repentance. Why? Why is this at the heart of the mission of of Jesus, at the mission of the apostles, and at the mission of the apostolic church that continues their mission down to this day, which is including you and me? It's because God loves us so much. God loves us so deeply. He longs for us to become who we were meant to be, that he will not allow us to come to him without first laying down those idols that are sucking the life right out of us, but we think they're giving us life. That's what repentance is at its core. It's letting go of those things that we're worshiping, that we're serving, that we're giving allegiance to, that we're looking for life from. And we do all of this in all kinds of ways. It's laying those things down and embracing Jesus, the one true Lord. It's giving up the way of those things and embracing the way of our true king and his desire to lead us into life. This call to repentance. I was having a conversation this week with a a really good friend of mine who isn't yet a follower of Jesus, and we were talking about some of these things, and he said, you know, I've been thinking about the the Christian thing, and I've been thinking this message that God loves you, which of, of course is at the heart of our proclamation, that it's perhaps just too good to be true, that isn't this just kind of, a wish fulfillment, like projection of what we wish were the case. And so we start to tell ourselves these things. You know, God loves you, God loves you, God loves you. And gently in that conversation, I just responded and said, you know, one of the reasons that I think we can look at this biblical story and say that it's 
it's got rootedness in reality is because while God says, I love you, he also says, I love you so much that I will not let you stay the way that you are, which is the call to repentance. In other words, in a culture that preaches a God of just absolute and utter acceptance and tolerance, the biblical God stands over and against that in a beautiful way, but a very challenging way, and says, I do love you, but in order for you to have life, I'm, I'm calling you out of what's causing you death and, drive, and bringing you in. And it's that call to repentance that becomes the occasion for much opposition. Because it's a singular call. It's an authoritative call. And it's a cutting call, much like a surgeon would cut into our bodies to rid us of those things that are destroying our life. So also the call of the mission of the church cuts into us to root out of us those things that are causing us, uh, that are diminishing our life. And this creates opposition. Third kind of opposition. We move on to the flashback. King Herod and John the Baptist. This story is astonishing for all kinds of reasons, and I hope I'll be able to touch on a few of those. But the opposition side of the story is, in, is, is found in Herod, who had locked John the Baptist up in prison. And it's the opposition of apathetic admiration. Herod has bound John the Baptist because John the Baptist spoke a word of truth to this man who had ambitions to be the king of Israel. They weren't really serious. Nobody thought that he could be, but he was rebuilding the temple, which is what kings did. He wanted to be great. But he married his brother's wife, Herodias. And John came and said, look, that's not right. It's not lawful. That's not what the king would do. Certainly not what the Messiah would do. Herodias wanted John the Baptist dead for his rebuke of their practice. But John wouldn't kill him. He just locked him up in prison. But then there's this interesting note where, in verse 20, it said, For Herod feared John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man, and he kept him safe. When he heard him, he was greatly perplexed, and yet he heard him gladly. Herod, listening to this message of repentance for the forgiveness of sins from John the Baptist, and hearing it gladly, he saw something, he admired something, but it was an apathetic admiration. It certainly didn't lead Herod to repentance. The urgent message was lost for something that seemed to tickle the ears. One wonders how much of the opposition that is encountered today in the mission of the church is like this. Those who are quick to applaud and admire Jesus. He's such an amazing teacher. And yet miss the call to bow down at his feet. There are those for whom Jesus has become the embodiment of our culture's chief value of, of tolerance, who look at Jesus and say, look, he accepts and affirms everyone. He brings sinners into his fold, which is, of course, deeply true, but misses this call that is more urgent and serious, that the Lord of glory longs to give us life, but calls us to let go of those things that are diminishing our life. In the end, those who admire Jesus in this way are perhaps more interested in other things, their own way, their culture's way. That seems to be Herod's story, as he resists John in this way, keeping him in prison. And then this one revelrous evening, a party for all the leaders that he wants to impress. 
the opinion of others weighing in on him. Herodias comes up with this ingenious plan to let her daughter, not one of the prostitutes that would normally do this kind of favor, come in and dance among the men and pleases Herod. And then, probably in his drunkenness, he says, I'll give you whatever you want. And the moment was there to seize. And so Herodias, deeply in control of her daughter, asks for John the Baptist's head on a platter. And it's brought in in just a few minutes later. The opposition of apathetic admiration. The opposition of a rejection of repentance. The opposition of over-familiarity. We read the Gospel of Mark as the early church did, as Mark intent, uh, wrote it down for this purpose, to encounter in a fresh way the power of Jesus and to let him melt our opposition. We continue to encounter these kinds of opposition in our own hearts and in the world around us. Look at what, just for a moment, the response to this opposition is. Look at verse 7, back in verse 7. Jesus it says, marveled at their unbelief. And what did he do next? He went out among the villages teaching. He moved on. He stepped forward. He pressed in. The apostles, when they encounter the opposition, they're told to shake the dust off their feet. And the story that you read out of Acts 18, Paul shakes his garments in a similar way to say, I'm done, I'm done with you. I'm going to move on to the next town or the next village. Part of what's going on here is there is an urgency to this message. This doesn't speak one-to-one -one in a correspondence to people that you may love or I may love that we're longing to see come to know Jesus as king. But it does remind us of the kind of urgency that's going on here. So my question is I want to bring this toward a close and think about how this opposition is overcome is why the flashback here? It's a flashback to John the Baptist's death. It's filling a literary function to give some space between when the apostles are sent out and when they come back as we read in verse 30 and they report to Jesus all that they had done and taught. Two reasons. One is that this is foreshadowing what is to come. The story of John the Baptist. Think about it. You have a king who's somewhat in flux, sub subject to the opinions of others around him, wanting to impress the crowd. And what does that king do? He takes this man that he reveres in some way, has some kind of admiration for, and lets him be killed. Does that sound familiar? It points us forward to another kingly figure, Pilate, who has some admiration for another righteous man, Jesus, who is influenced by the crowds, who eventually concedes and allows them to have their way. It's pointing us forward to this death of Jesus. But it's also doing something else. It's actually also sandwiched in between the, the, the story of the apostles and their journey and their, their mission. We get the introduction in 7 through 12, and then the flashback comes, and then we get the finishing of the journey in verse 30. 
Remember when this gospel is being written down. It's being written down about 35 years after the death and resurrection of Jesus, when no doubt the church is wrestling and struggling with the real opposition that they're encountering as they go out to proclaim the good news of life in Jesus as Lord. And it's as if Mark is encouraging the church in that day and the church in our day to say, there will be opposition. It is coming. But stand firm. Remain steadfast. Hold fast to Jesus. I often think that the story of John the Baptist's end is one of the most challenging stories in all of Scripture. Here is the forerunner of the Messiah. Here's the man who was the Elijah to come before Yahweh returns to Zion. Here's the man who's been entrusted with the message of repentance and preparing the way. And how does his life end? In a prison cell. At a party, because of a party favor, having his head chopped off. There are no promises of flourishing in a sort of a physical sense in the mission of God. Again, granted, this is an extreme case of that kind of opposition that's encountered. But I think what Mark is trying to get across here is to say, the apostles were sent out on mission. Things were happening. But there are these minor key themes that are coming about in the gospel that he's foreshadowing here. There's going to be a clash. There's going to be a conflict. There's going to be hardship. And it's going to be a part of your and my experience. I would submit to you that the answer for how all of these oppositions is overcome is in the story of hardship that this points forward to. John the Baptist remains dead, but the one to whom this points, this story points, the one whom Pilate and the crowds had crucified, he rose from the dead. He conquered the grave. He demonstrated his victory over sin and evil and death, over every opposition that was in our own hearts, because believe me, the apostles, though they go out out and have success in mission, They are no models of faith in Mark's gospel. They continue to stumble and bumble and not understand. And we'll get to this in the next couple of weeks. They don't understand, but but God has a way of overcoming even that opposition. And it's the way of his power and victory expressed in the cross of Jesus. And it's by seeing the one to whom John the Baptist's martyrdom points and his victory and his glory that empowers us in this present day to live a life of reckless abandon in overcoming the opposition within our own hearts, of overfamiliarity, of rejecting repentance, of apathetic admiration, to overcoming the opposition around us, to the scandal of the particularity of the gospel, or the ethics of the kingdom, these kinds of things that cause lots of chafing in the midst of our world today. We move through those things by holding on to the one to whom this martyrdom of John the Baptist points, Jesus, the greater one the one who was to come, who yielded to the Father as we are called to yield, who endured great suffering, even execution, but who rose from the grave. We're a a people on mission, sent out, and opposition will be our experience. For some, that may mean the extremes of John the Baptist or Jesus. For all, it will mean some ways of being a misfit and encountering difficulty 
in the culture around us. We don't get to choose. We get to follow this risen King Jesus. Amen.